We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10% off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com gold in my early days i faced a pivotal moment in my career instead of following the herd into traditional finance i charted my own course despite skepticism i founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility through perseverance i established myself as a leading voice in finance proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed to get what you want sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail that's what harry's did seeing people tricked by expensive razors harry's took a stand Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. Well, another week has come to an end and another week where the financial crisis that has already begun continues to play out beneath the radar. Nobody understands that this crisis has started, but believe me, it has. I mean, this was the way the 2008 financial crisis started. It didn't just happen when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. I mean, by that point, uh, you know, everybody knew that we had a crisis. But the crisis was obvious before Lehman went under. That's the reason it went under. It didn't just go out of business, you know, out, out of the dark. It wasn't just, you know, happenstance. The reason that Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and Fannie and Freddie and AIG and all these companies went under was their exposure to the mortgage market. That exposure was obvious to me for years, but particularly in 2007 when the subprime market blew up. That was the point where even the village idiot should have been able to figure out what was coming. The problem was most people on Wall Street weren't even smart enough to qualify as the village idiot, so they still couldn't figure it out. They needed that proverbial, uh, you know, uh, anvil uh, or piano, whatever, to fall on their head, which is what happened in September of 2008. 
But even during the summer of 2008, people were oblivious to the crisis, even though it was a huge crisis. I mean, not huge compared to what we're about to experience, but relative to what anybody had experienced up until 2008, there was nothing like it, right? You had to go back to the Great Depression. Now, what we're going through now is going to be worse than the Great Depression. So, you know, they had it easy back then. I mean, this is going to be much more difficult. But as, as enormous as this problem was, and it erupted right in September of 08, Wall Street, the Federal Reserve, at least what they acknowledged, they were oblivious to this. So if you're wondering, Peter, how can we be so close to this massive crisis? In fact, how could this crisis have already started if nobody is talking about it? Well, just go back to the summer of 2008. Nobody was talking about it. Remember, I was saying it's like there's this, you know, Category 5 hurricane right off the coast, and not a single weatherman has noticed it. Right? I was out there telling people, hey, the storm is coming. Uh, but nobody noticed it until, you know, it was ravaging uh, the town because, you know, it finally made, made landfall. So if you, if, if you want to know how it could happen, just go back. You know, if you go to my website, the original Peter Schiff was right video, uh, the guy that posted it took it down years ago. I don't know why he took it down, but he did. But I made a copy of it before he did. So I've got that original video, which had a couple of million views on it back in 2009, which isn't a lot of views by today's standards. But back then, YouTube was very young. It was very rare to have a a video with 2 million views. I mean, I was one of the top videos uh, on on YouTube back then. Uh, But I made a copy of it, and you can watch the Peter Schiff was right video. Most of those clips were taken from interviews I did in 2008. So this is the year of the crisis. And they're still laughing at me for predicting it. Yet we were on the cusp of it. This one is much bigger. The problems are much bigger. They're the same problems. They just dwarf the size of the problems that we had before. Because instead of actually dealing with the problems, we kicked the can down the road and made the problems bigger. And now we have to deal with the consequences of that. You know, it's ironic. Jamie Dimon, I guess, came out today, and he had to admit that he's going to sell some of his uh, J.P. Morgan Chase stock. He owns over a billion dollars worth of the stock, at least at today's market price. Uh, And so he's going to sell about a million shares, which at today's price is about $135 million. And this is the first time he's done that. I guess he's had the job for 20 years, and he's never sold any stock. Now, of course, he gets paid a lot of money uh, to run J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, so he doesn't need to sell the stock. And you know, maybe he's borrowed some money. I'm sure that you know, with interest rates at next to nothing, you know, when you run a bank, uh, he probably borrowed some money uh, against that stock. I don't know. I'm just you know, just taking a shot that he that he that he borrowed some of that cheap money. Because uh, he didn't want to sell the stock and pay capital gains taxes, just borrow the money and deduct the interest. So he probably did that. But now all of a sudden, he wants to sell stock. Now, the stock hit a 52-week low today. Uh, so did Morgan Stanley. Uh, Goldman Sachs hit a 52-week low. Actually, actually, I don't know if J.P. Morgan Chase did. I know Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs hit 52-week lows. The stock was down today. 
Uh, the banks got hit pretty hard on, on the day. But J.P. Morgan Chase has got to be insolvent. There's no way that they're still solvent. All of these banks, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, uh, they're, they're insolvent. They have to be. There's no way they can't be. Now, as long as they pretend that all their underwater assets, they're going to hold them to maturity, well, they can pretend that they don't have a problem. But eventually, they have to stop pretending because circumstances intervene and they actually need to sell the securities that they had intended to hold to maturity. If you recall, if you were following me back in, uh, back in the day, back in 2008, when a lot of people started following me, one of the many reasons that I was against the bailouts, the bank bailouts, the TARP program, uh, was that I knew that if we bailed out these too big to fail banks, that the next time we had to bail them out, they would be even bigger. So if they're too big to fail, then let's let them fail. Because why keep them alive so that they can get a lot bigger so that when they fail in the future, it's even worse. Because if they were too big to fail in 2008, what are they now? Because all of those banks that we bailed out are much, much bigger now than they were then. And they're in much more trouble now than they are then, uh, than they were then. You know, and, and hardly anybody knows how big this crisis is. Look, not even the gold traders understand. The people that are buying gold stocks, you know, gold stocks finally managed an up day today. It wasn't like they were up a lot, but gold was up better than $20. It, it closed the week above 2000 closed at 2005. So this is the highest weekly close since May 5th. That was a while ago. But if you look at gold stocks, gold stocks would have to rise over 20%, maybe 22%, something like that, to get back to where they were on May 5th. So gold stocks have gone through an entire bear market, and the price of gold hasn't gone down at all. Why? Why are gold stock traders so pessimistic when the price of gold hasn't even gone down? And in fact, it's on the verge of an explosive move up. You know, it's possible that now that gold's above 2,000, it may never go below it again. We'll see. I mean, it probably will, but, you know, watch it over the weekend. Maybe gold's going to gap up on Monday. Maybe it's going to gap up to a record high. If it doesn't do it this Monday, it's going to do it at some point. And if it does, it may never look back. That's why, you know, I've talked to the guys that ship gold. They're going to be working all weekend. So just in case uh, this is a big Monday, uh, you know, get your gold by Sunday night. You know, you can, still, you can still buy it. And remember, there's still two more days left of October. So don't think we're out of the woods yet for a stock market crash. We can crash on Monday. We can crash on Tuesday and still make it in October. Now, of course, stock market can crash in November too. But, uh, you know, we've had some historical... Uh, declines in in October. And the market should be going down. In fact, it probably would have been down a lot more today if it wasn't for Amazon, which was up almost 7% on, on, on better earnings. So that, that kept the NASDAQ in positive territory. Although on the week, the NASDAQ was still down. I mean, it got uh, beaten up prior to Friday on some, you know, we said bad numbers. I think Google uh, and, and some other companies or Alphabet, whatever you call it these days, uh, had bad numbers the day before and dragged the market lower. But the, uh, 
the Russell, the Nasdaq was down 2.6% on the, the week. That was the same decline as the Russell 2000. So the small caps got beaten up. The S&P was down 2.5% on the week. And the Dow was down 2.2%, down 360 or some odd points today, uh, closing near the lows of the day. So setting us up for a potential big drop on Monday. Look at the ARK Innovation ETF, some of these real high flyers. That was down 10.5% on the week. So the air coming out of that bubble, you know, a lot of money went into these AI-type stocks. Uh, and I think uh, now we're starting to see that deflate. Bitcoin, too, I think. Uh, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which now everybody is convinced is going to become a, a, an open-ended uh, spot Bitcoin ETF. And maybe they're right. Maybe the SEC is going to approve it. I mean, who cares? Because it's not bullish for Bitcoin. It's actually bearish. But that fund uh, was up about 6% on the week. But I think what was significant is that it closed 9% below its high on the week. Uh, so it looks like the air is coming out of that bubble too. And again, shares of this trust were trading at a 50% discount, like not too long ago. People wouldn't even buy Bitcoin for 50 cents on the dollar. What makes anybody think they're going to rush and pay 100 cents on the dollar just because it's an ETF? They're not. Anybody who wants exposure to Bitcoin, there's so many ways to do it. There are already ETFs for Bitcoin futures. You could buy stuff like uh, uh, MicroStrategies, which is for all intent and purpose, a Bitcoin play. And it's not like people have been stuck on the sidelines without a way to buy Bitcoin. Of course, they could buy it directly. This is all a bunch of hype. But all of this stuff is collapsing. The one thing that's rising right now is gold. But again, even the gold stock investors don't realize what's going on because even they're not bearish enough. Even they don't understand. They're looking at the bond market. Yields on the 30-year treasury were up again today. We closed the week north of 5%, uh, 5.023% on the 30-year. And that's still scaring the, the, the gold stock investors. They don't understand that bond yields and the gold price are going to rise together because it is inflation that is driving both higher and a loss of confidence in the fiscal position of the United States. And I'm going to continue on that topic on the other side of this break. So stick around. We'll be right back. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. All right, I'm talking about the, the fiscal uh, position of the United States now that very few people appreciate 
uh, the severity of this crisis. Now, I was reading an article in Newsweek. I got it on my phone here. And the title was America is headed for an interest payment crisis. And, and so at least they're writing about, about this. But they still don't get the severity of this. And it's not just the interest uh, payments. It's the principal. It's not just that we can't pay the interest, but we have to pay the principal. You know, for years, people used to tell me, Peter, why are you worried about the debt? You know, we never have to pay that back. All that counts is the interest. We have to pay the interest, but we don't have to pay back the principal. In fact, if you ask most experts today, they'll say the same thing. Who, we don't have to pay the principal. Well, my response to that was always, what do you mean we don't have to pay back the money? We, we borrowed it. It's a loan. I mean, that's the whole you know, nature of a loan. right? This isn't a gift that we got. You know, the national debt wasn't a gift. It's debt. By its nature, debt has to be repaid. So when they would say, we don't have to repay the debt, I would say, well, did you run that by the Chinese? Did you run it by the Japanese? Do they know that that's the deal? Do they know that they're loaning us money, but they're never going to get it back? Because, you know, that's not a loan. That is a gift. They're not giving us this money. They are loaning it, and that means they expect to get it back. Now, of course, what people would tell me is, well, we, of course we will pay them back because we'll borrow it from somebody else. <laughs> so in other words, it's a Ponzi scheme, right? So Bernie Madoff never had to worry about you know, paying back money because he would get it from the next sucker who didn't realize it was a Ponzi scheme. Well, what happens when people realize it's a Ponzi scheme? They don't want to participate. And that's what's going on. Our creditors don't want to loan us more money to pay back the other creditors. That is what is happening. That is why bond yields are going up, because the people who own the bonds want their money back as they mature, and we can't find new buyers. Now, prices are moving down and yields are going up, and so we're enticing some buyers into the market, but there's not enough. <clears throat> and here is the problem. Because normally you would think, okay, if there aren't people willing to buy treasuries, well, the yields will go up, and then the higher yields will be an inducement to buy. But it doesn't really work that way. Because in this circumstance, as interest rates goes up, that um, impedes the solvency of the United States. Because as interest rates go up, we need to borrow more money to pay that interest, which means the debt goes up. As the debt goes up, America becomes a worse credit risk. And it becomes even more likely that we have to create even more inflation to service that debt, let alone repay the debt. So higher interest rates don't actually make treasuries more attractive. They make them less attractive. That is the problem. This is a, a, a bottomless pit. This is a self-perpetuating collapse that we are witnessing that is going to gather momentum. And so what's happening is we have to pay back the principal, the money that we've owed, because we can't find people. We have very short maturities on the national debt. And this goes all the way back to President Clinton. You know, I was listening to Sean Hannity uh, interviewing um, the... Um, 
the new speaker of the House of Representatives, Mike Jordan, right, who is now the speaker. We finally have this speaker of the House. And he was talking to Mike Jordan, and Mike Jordan was talking about the Trump economy. And he said that, you know, when Donald Trump was president, we had the greatest economy in the history of the world, right? That is the lie that I think will win Trump re-election. I mean, that's what the Republicans are going to say. Maybe some of them actually believe this. But we didn't have the greatest economy in the history of the world. I mean, it wasn't even close. I mean, we didn't even have the greatest economy in the history of America. We didn't have the greatest economy in 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 the 21st century. We had a bubble under Trump. Trump didn't create the bubble. He inherited the bubble, and he made it bigger. That bubble is now popped under Biden. That's what's happening. You know, most likely had Trump been reelected, it would have popped on his watch. Who knows, right? But this was inevitable. But the origins, really, of this bubble go back to Clinton. It goes back to the Greenspan era, although Greenspan was there before Clinton. But the, 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 the big monetary policy mistakes took place starting in the 1990s when Bill Clinton was president. And the bubble initially popped uh, when George Bush came in, George W. Bush. And then that's when we, we started uh, even more reckless policies because that's when we had the TARP and we got the bubble even bigger with all the quantitative easing that took place mainly under the Biden presidency. You know, so Trump came in there for four years. But during those four years, he didn't do anything to change the dynamics. The deficits got bigger under Trump. The trade deficits hit new record highs. We increased government spending. Yes, the Fed ratcheted up interest rates somewhat, but all that stopped, of course, uh, when COVID hit. But Trump wasn't the game changer. He kept the game going. That's all he did. Now, in the scheme of things, was Trump less bad uh, than Obama? Was he less bad than Biden? Yes, he was. But, you know, less bad ain't going to cut it. We actually need a good president, not a president who's less bad than the alternative. But the idea that people think that everything was great just a few years ago and everything and it's all gone to hell, that's wrong because that assumes that we could just fix it. Really simple. Right. We just have to go back to the to Trump policies and we're going to be great again. No, you, th- this problem is much bigger than just the bad things that that Biden has done. But going back to uh, Clinton, it was his secretary of the Treasury, Robert Rubin. He's the guy that started shortening the maturity of the national debt, meaning that the government would borrow not for 30 years, but 90 days, one year, shorter maturities. Why did Rubin do that? Well, it was to make the deficits look smaller. Remember, Clinton was trying to balance the budget. And for a couple of years, you know, with uh, sleight of hand accounting, they did. They did manage a balanced budget. Of course, the national debt actually went up every year that the budget was supposedly balanced because they didn't count a lot of the spending as part of the official budget. But one of the ways that they brought down the deficit was by reducing the interest expense on the national debt. And how did they do that? They did that by refinancing the debt 
from longer to shorter maturities because the shorter maturities had lower interest payments. That's the same thing a lot of Americans did with housing. They took adjustable rate mortgages. They got teaser rates because the rates were lower. Now, of course, the trade-off was risk that eventually rates could go up, but politicians will make that trade-off because the trade-off that um, Rubin made with Clinton was that, yes, in the long run, this is bad for the country because we should be locking in these low interest rates. And in the long run, rates are going to go up. But that's somebody else's problem because, you know, Clinton won't be in office when this bomb explodes. So in the meantime, let's have a short term financing of the debt. And it'll be the next president's problem when interest rates went up. Well, when uh, Bush became president, he did the same thing. He shortened the maturity. When Obama became president, he shortened the maturity. And Trump did the exact same thing. While he was president, he didn't take advantage of the low interest rates to try to lengthen the maturity of the national debt. He actually continued the you know, politically expedient but long-term disastrous policies of making that deal with the devil, of shortening the maturities knowing that the bomb would blow up in the future and that's what's happening right now on Biden's watch. Now, interest rates are soaring and all that short-term debt that we've been taking on for 20 years, now it's maturing and we have to roll it over at 525, 550 basis points. We could have locked it in years ago for 30 years at two or 300 basis points, but we didn't do that because it was cheaper to finance it at 25 basis points, but now we're paying the price and it's gonna escalate into this complete sovereign debt and currency crisis, which has already started, but is a long way from ending. Anyway, we got one more commercial break and we'll be right back. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. All right, I want to finish talking about the uh, Newsweek article, America's Headed for an Interest Payment Crisis. And the, the bear that they quoted in the article was Stephen Moore, who, who I know well. He's a friend of mine, and he, he got involved in the, the, uh, the Trump administration. You know, he's very close with Larry Kudlow, who was, you know, who was involved in that administration as well. And he was the one saying, hey, this is going to be a crisis. Interest payments are skyrocketing. Soon, uh, interest is going to eat up 100% of tax revenue. Uh, all that is true. But where was Steve Moore uh, when Trump was president? And he actually had a chance to do something about it. He wasn't worried about it at all. He was worried about uh, the debt before Trump 
and now he's worried about the debt after Trump. But somehow during the four years that we had Trump, he wasn't worried about it at all. That's the problem with the politics. Larry Kudlow was the same way. I was on Kudlow's show all the time criticizing the Bush economy. When, when Larry Kudlow was saying it's the greatest story ever told, it's the Goldilocks economy, I was pointing out it was a bubble. Larry had a hard time accepting it because there was a Republican in the White House. I don't care, Democrat, Republican. I'm going to tell the truth about how bad the economy is, even if the party in power is my party, even though I'm not necessarily Republican. I mean, I'm more of a libertarian, or I mean, I am a libertarian, although I'm not registered as one. Uh, and I ran as a Republican, so I'm far closer to what we now call Republicans than what we now call Democrats. But I'm not going to pretend that the economy is great just because a Republican is in the White House. And I'm not going to pretend that that Republican is doing a great job when he's not. Right? Just because he's not doing as bad a job as a Democrat could be doing doesn't mean I'm, he's going to get a pass. But getting back to this article, because I want to talk about they were quoting some guys from academia, right? some guy from um, uh, the Wharton School, and they were basically saying that, oh, you know, we're blowing this whole thing out of proportion, right? It's really not that big a deal. Like guys like Schiff, although they didn't mention me, of course, but they, you know, Chicken Littles, the Gloom and Doomers, this is, you know, this is really no big deal. And what they point to is Japan. Oh, look, you know, Japan, they got 200% debt to GDP, uh, so it's okay. Well, you know what? They're having a problem right now in Japan. They're on the cusp of a crisis. The, the 10-year uh, JGB is now up to 0.87%, and the yen broke 150. Inflation is really starting to rap, ratchet up. So, I mean, don't say, hey, Japan got off scot-free. They didn't. They're about to get their comeuppance. But we're in a different situation than Japan, so we're going to get our comeuppance sooner, right? <laughs> it, we're not going to get to 200% of GDP. We won't even get to 150%. I mean, we're over 120 now. But what these guys don't get who are, you know, talking about Japan and comparing us to Japan, they don't get the difference. Japan is a net creditor. America is a net debtor. The world owes Japan a lot of money. Japan has a lot of that money in U.S. dollar assets, in U.S. treasuries, in U.S. mortgage-backed securities. Japan is going to sell and is selling those assets to try to mitigate the damage. And because Japan was so wealthy and didn't have to borrow from abroad, they were able to run up their debt higher before the crisis happened. It doesn't mean they're not going to have a crisis. They just had more rope right, before they finally hung themselves with that rope. America doesn't have as much rope because we're broke. We owe the world. We owe the world a fortune. We depend on the world to buy our paper, to buy our treasuries. That's our biggest export, our debt, our dollars and our debt. And if we can't export that anymore, the economy doesn't function anymore. It's built on that whole foundation, which is in the process of collapsing. So you can't draw some false comfort in the fact that Japan got away with it to 200% of GDP or whatever it is, and so we can too. We're not Japan. We are worse. We're Argentina. That's what we are. And in fact, by the way, Argentina, I think they just raised their interest rates to like 100 and, what was it, like 137% or something, 130, something like that, 50. But it's still below their inflation rate. 
their inflation rate is higher than that. Even though they have interest rates, you know, in the triple digits, it's not going to work. It's not going to stop inflation. The budget deficits are rising in Argentina. The trade deficits, I mean, the, 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 the national debt is rising. So inflation is not going away. These rate hikes aren't going to stop it because they can't change the dynamic of government spending. We are in the same predicament. And, you know, people want to say, oh, you know, you can't compare America to Argentina. Sure we can. Right. The laws of physics work in America the same way they work in Argentina. Right. Economics are laws. Uh, we have the same consequences. You know, at one point, Argentina was one of the wealthiest nations in the world. I think it was in the top five, maybe even the top three. And in fact, on a per capita basis, I think at one point, incomes in Argentina were the highest in the world, higher than America. So Argentina wasn't always broke. Right? They are now. Uh, so if it can happen to Argentina, it can happen to America. If we're doing the same exact thing that they did, running these big deficits, printing all this money, you know, we are at a uh, inflection point here that people don't get, you know? And again, one of the other false comparisons, not just to Japan, which is in a very different financial position than the United States. And of course, the United States in 1980, when we, we had to confront this problem and we solved it, right? By letting interest rates go up to 20%, we were in a much better position back then. Debt to GDP was 30%. America was still a creditor nation like Japan is in 1980. We were running trade surpluses in 1980. So we could do the right thing in 1980 because we could afford it. We're too broke to do the right thing uh, in 2023. So it's not even within the realm of possibility, right? There, there, there are just various wrong things that we're going to do. And I'm, you know, I have an idea on, on, on which one they're going to do. It's the one that's the most politically expedient, which is also... Uh, the most damaging. But the other time period, again, that they want to go back to is World War II because, hey, in World War II, debt to GDP got up to 119%. And oh, we survived that. Yes, we did survive that because we were a rich nation back then and we paid down the debt. Uh, debt to GDP went down from 119% in 1946 to 68% in 1953. So was that seven years to get the national debt almost cut in half as a percentage of GDP? And in four of the five years that immediately preceded 1946, the U.S. ran budget surpluses. The government collected more than it spent and it paid down the debt. The biggest surplus was in 1948. The surplus that year was equal to 4.3% of GDP. That was the surplus. Now, in today's dollars, that's almost 1.2 trillion. Now, can you imagine running a one? First of all, we're running a $2 trillion deficit. So to go from a $2 trillion deficit to a $1.2 trillion surplus is going to require over $3 trillion in tax hikes and spending cuts in one year. How is that even within the realm of possibility? It's not. In fact, I, I did the math. Really, in order for us to do what we did 
in the 1940s and early 1950s to get our debt to GDP down from 120 something percent where it is now to make a similar reduction in a similar time period, we'd have to cut about $30 trillion in total. So you add up all the seven years of cuts, we'd have to have $30 trillion worth of tax cuts and, and, and spending cuts, some combination to, to, to get the debt down. That is impossible. There's, I mean, we can't even get Congress to cut spending when times are good. How are they going to do it when times are horrific? And they're not going to raise taxes on even the rich when times are good. But even if they tax the rich, it's pennies. And the rich are about to lose a lot of money. So we're probably not going to get any tax revenue out of them because you can't get blood from a stone. The rich have got a lot of assets that are about to collapse in, in, in real value. Again, that's one of the reasons that Jamie Dimon is abandoning ship here. Right? I mean, his family doesn't really need that $135 million. I mean, I know there's been a lot of inflation, but I'm sure the Diamond family can handle it. I mean, you know, I, I, they really need all that extra cash uh, to, uh, to make ends meet. I mean, if, if they need the money, I mean, what does that say uh, for the rest of us? But look, he can read the writing on the wall that the banks are going down. The economy is going down. I mean, if uh, Ford Motor Company, I don't even think I mentioned it, it was down 12.5% today a new 52-week low. General Motors was down almost 5%, a new 52-week low. These stocks are down about 35% from their 52-week highs. Our automobile companies getting killed. Even though they're settling the strike, that's probably going to be a problem because now they got to pay up. Um, but the economy is imploding in slow motion now. It is going to uh, pick up the pace. But people are not contemplating the severity of this problem or what it's going to take right, to resolve this. Because there are two basic paths that we could go on. One is default and deflation. The other is devaluation and inflation. And so what's the difference? Right? Default is an honest admission that we can't pay. So the U.S. government has to tell its creditors, we can't pay you your money. You loaned us this money, you want it back, but we don't have it. So we can't pay you. Now, there's various ways we can default. You know, one way, again, I mentioned this before, we could just lengthen the maturities on this debt. We can tell the people that own the U.S. Treasury, a 30-year Treasury, you loaned us this money for 30, for, for I don't know, the people that own the one-year treasuries because the treasuries are maturing and they want their money back and we don't have it. So we can say, look, you bought this one-year treasury a year ago and it's paying 1%. We don't have the principal. Nobody wants to buy our bonds anymore but the Fed and we don't want, we, have, we want to stop printing money. So we're just going to extend your maturity. So we'll pay you in 30 years. See you in 30 years. In the meantime, we'll keep honoring the coupon, so we'll give you 1% on your money for the next 30 years, and in 30 years, you know, we'll pay you off, right? That's what we can tell them. Now, what's that bond going to be worth the minute we do that? 40 cents, 30 cents, right? It's a huge haircut, but that's a form of default. Now, another way we could do it is we could tell people, look, we don't have the dollar. We don't have all the money that we owe you, but we'll give you 30 cents, right? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna just give everybody a haircut. But... 
it's not just the bondholders that we have to default on. We got to tell the Social Security recipients, you know, we promised all these benefits to get your votes. Problem is we don't have the money. And so you can't have the benefits. Sorry about that. Uh, we're going to have to cut Social Security, Medicare, Obamacare, all this. Government's going to have to tell uh, people on government pensions, you know, you worked many, many years for the government, uh, and we promised you all this money when you retired, but you know what? We don't have it. So you can't get it, right? I mean, that's it. Right? So, so the government has to kind of fess up and admit that it, it, it can't keep its promises or that it lied. And we have default. And now we have deflation. Prices come down. Asset prices, everything comes down right? in deflation. The alternative to that is a devaluation. We devalue the dollar. So we, we don't have to default. We just print money and, and, and give people that money. Right? If the Fed can print as much money as it wants, and it, just, it just doesn't give it any value. It, just, it, you know, it can print money, but it can't assign value to that money. And the more it prints, the less value it's going to have. So we end up just printing. And so prices crash. The dollar crashes. And our creditors get their money back, but they don't get their purchasing power back. And in fact, the losses will be even bigger if that happens. Now, there is another way, too, that the government could do that. If they were, and actually a better way than just running the printing presses like crazy. Another way to do that is to just pay off the debt with the gold that's in Fort Knox. Now, of course, I don't know how much gold is still in Fort Knox, and I don't even recall what the most recent audit is. But remember, the dollar is legally defined as a weight of gold, and Congress can change that definition. They've already done it several times. Remember, Roosevelt devalued the dollar, and he took the gold price from $20 up to 35 then Richard Nixon devalued the dollar again, and he took it up from 35 to 42 and change. I forget the exact number, but technically, a dollar is at you know 42 dollars. Gold is at 42 dollars an ounce. That's that that that's that's what a dollar is worth legally, right? Now, the government couldn't pay off much of the national debt if it was going to value its gold at 42 dollars an ounce. In fact, why would it do that? The market price of gold is 2,000 dollars an ounce, right? But if the U.S. government really wants to pay down its debt to the point where it can handle it, it could do that by repaying the debt, not by printing more money, but by paying it off in gold. But they have to revalue the price of gold. Where? 10000 20000 30000 I don't know where the number is, but the number keeps getting higher and higher the more money we print. But we could do that because we, could, we, we decide what the dollar is worth because the treasury bonds are IOUs for dollars. Well, if gold is $20,000 an ounce, it's a lot easier for us to pay down trillions of our debt with our gold when we've uh, devalued the dollar to that degree. And we said, this is what gold is now worth. Now, of course, when that happens, the dollar's exchange rate crashes. We haven't really made gold more valuable, we've made the dollar less value. We've now officially devalued it, and we're telling our creditors, we're going to pay you back gold at $20,000, $30,000 an ounce, or whatever it is, right? 
And so then prices are going to have to respond. Prices are going to skyrocket for everything in line with the devalued dollar. That's why I said it's devaluation and inflation. We devalue the dollar, right? And everything goes up in price. The price of everything goes up. So if there's default, we can have deflation. If we have a devaluation, uh, we have inflation. Now, it's the devaluation route that I think we're going to go in. Because if we don't do that, all hell is going to break loose. Now, it's probably going to break loose if we do it. It just may break loose a little bit later. And again, that is what the politicians and the bankers are looking for. What can we do to postpone the consequences? Even if what we're doing has dire consequences, maybe they're not quite as dire as the ones that we're going to postpone by doing this. And that's where you get uh, this devaluation. Because otherwise, again, everybody's going to lose. And I forgot, the banks, I, I talked about this on the podcast earlier, that the banks uh, are insolvent and they're going to fail. Well, if we do the default and deflation, when the banks fail, not only do they not get bailed out like we did with the TARP in 2009, not only do we have to let the banks fail, but we have to let the depositors lose money. Now, they won't lose all their money, but they're going to lose a lot of their money. They're not going to get all their money back because the banks don't have it. It's gone. And the FDIC doesn't have it either. You know, during the Depression, we didn't have any deposit insurance. Right? The deposit insurance came about during the 1930s as a result of the Depression. It was an overreaction. Before the Great Depression, there was no deposit insurance. You might think, well, how did the banking system work? Right? You, well, people did their homework. As crazy as that may sound, people did their homework. They didn't just put their money in any old bank because it had a, an ATM machine around the corner from their house. They actually, you know, looked for a good bank. And the banks, you know, competed on soundness. And it was a free market. So we had a sound banking system. Now, of course, we had the Great Depression. And everybody talks about, oh, we had bank failures. Yeah, we did. But not that much money was lost in those bank failures. And in fact, I had read that in total, during the Depression, only about 2% of the bank deposits were actually lost. So 98% of the deposits were secure and, and returned to the bank customers. Now, if you were one of the 2%, if your bank failed and you lost a bunch of money, that was tough. But most people didn't lose money. And prices went down about 30%, consumer prices, during the Depression. So your money actually gained value. So the purchasing power of our bank deposits went up during the Depression. Even though there was some losses, right? Uh, the money that was left, the 98% that wasn't lost, was a lot more valuable than what was there originally. But if you look at the banking system today, the losses will be horrific. In fact, the losses to inflation alone dwarf that 2%. I mean, people are losing more money this year to inflation than they lost during the entirety of the Great Depression in banks without any government insurance. But this government insurance, because of the moral hazard that it created over the years, the entire banking system is insolvent. And when it fails, the losses are going to dwarf uh, the losses of the Great Depression because of the government's uh, deposit insurance. Right? The government came in to protect us, and it, it, it made everything worse, which is always the case with government. Uh, and now the losses will be much greater because we have insurance than they were when there was no government insurance uh, at all. But 
to avoid those losses and the political embarrassment that would result, they're going to go the inflation route. Uh, the, and they're going to go for devaluation. And this is all happening quickly. Right? This is going to unravel. Uh, again, it's slow, but it's going to build up momentum. We are in uh, 2007. We may even be in 2008. We may be that close. We may be on the cusp of this crash. I mean, it could be weeks away. It could be months away. But it is going to start. And, you know, you're going to see it in the gold price uh, you might see it in the foreign exchange rate of the dollar. Look, we got more economic news today uh, that you know confirms what I'm saying. Uh, we got consumer sentiment that came out. It was a little bit better than estimates at 63.8. It's still a low number. But what stood out to me was the inflation expectations rose from 3.8% to 4.2% heading in the wrong direction. Consumers are now expecting higher inflation than they were before. I mean, obviously, too, the Fed puts a lot of stock in these expectations, which isn't really why we're going to have inflation. And the consumer, they're, they're wrong. It's going to be a lot more than 4.2%. But why are they expecting more inflation? Because they are living with more inflation. In fact, we're living with a lot more inflation than the statistics uh, recognize. That is what is skewing the numbers. We got the GDP numbers on um, Wednesday for the third quarter. And it came out at 4.9% was the GDP. The expectation was 4.2, right? So all the headlines, hey, it's a great economy. GDP is 4.9%. We got this rip-roaring economy because we got this super resilient uh, consumer who's just taking all these interest rate hikes in stride and just as dynamic in his spending, and they're out there shopping, and you know you can't stop this uh, all-powerful uh, you American consumer, right? That's the nonsense that the media is saying. The reason that the economy is growing is because we're underreporting inflation. According to the GDP, they use a deflator of three and a half percent. They claim that's what the inflation is. It's a lot higher than that. So we're it, we don't have a strong economy. We're just not reporting the true strength of inflation. That's what's driving these numbers. This is nominal GDP, right? That's why Ford stock is crashing, General Motors stock. You know, it, the consumer doesn't have any real money. He's spending. Yes, we got the spending numbers, which is driving GDP. We got personal income and spending today. Personal spending rose 0.7 on the month, more than expected. They were looking for 0.5. But why is spending going up? Because prices are going up. That's why people aren't buying more. They're buying less. They're just paying more. And where are they getting the money? Well, one way is they have two or three jobs. That's how they're getting the money. People have so many jobs, and they still can't make ends meet. How do we know that? Because the savings rate collapsed from 4% down to 3.4%. Why are consumers having to tap into their savings, even though they have three jobs? That's still not enough. They have to dig, dig into their you know, shallow savings pool, dip into that, to make ends meet. And that's not even enough. Credit card debt is at record highs, despite more Americans having more jobs than ever before. So Americans have never worked so many jobs, yet their credit card debt is going up. Their standard of living is imploding because inflation is so much higher 
than is actually being reported. And that's what's skewing all these numbers. That's what's skewing the personal income numbers. That's what's skewing the GDP numbers. It is inflation. It is inflation that is not being properly measured. And that explains the whole dichotomy. You have all these people who are saying, oh, we got this great economy. Why don't the consumers know it? Because it's a lousy economy, and the consumers know that because they're living in it. Look, if you've got three jobs, and you used to have one, and you can't even pay your bills with three jobs, and you're having to borrow more money, and you're having to deplete whatever savings you had, and you still can't get by, why are you supposed to think you're living in this great economy? Why are you supposed to think Bidenomics is this great thing just because you've got these misleading government statistics? The statistics that count, that nobody is paying attention to, is the enormity of this national debt. It's now $33.675 trillion. We're adding, I don't know, $3, $4 trillion a year. The national debt is going ballistic in that trajectory. And the, the cost of financing it is skyrocketing. Government tax receipts are falling uh, as the economy is actually collapsing beneath all these uh, rosy headlines. So the budget deficits are, 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 are soaring. The net interest expense, this whole thing. You know, people were making fun of me years ago. You know, when I went on the CNBC, when they still had me on, and I said, you know, gold's going to be $5,000 an ounce. And at the time, it was, you know, whatever, $1,700, $1,800, whatever, you know, it was. And I was saying gold's going to $5,000. Gold's going a lot higher to 5,000 now. I mean, 20,000, 30,000, I don't know where it's going. But 5,000, we can't have 5,000 gold anymore because we've made so many mistakes since then. I didn't realize back in 2009, 2010, 2011 that we could get away with this for 20 years. I didn't realize it. It doesn't mean I was wrong about understanding the problem. I understood it. I just underestimated the ability of America to get away with it for another two decades and the, the willingness of the world to finance it. Because again, they're not getting their money back. Our creditors are not getting their money back. They've loaned us trillions of dollars and they're not getting their money back. Now, it's not that they didn't want it back. They didn't give us the money. They believed they were loaning us the money. They ain't getting it back because we don't have it. So either they're going to lose through default or they're going to lose through inflation. But these revelations are about to come to light. Right? We were able to uh, pretend it all away. Nobody cared. You know, I talked about that um, with Puerto Rico. You know, Puerto Rico had a debt crisis. You know, so did Greece. They went through a debt crisis, other countries. But Puerto Rico was borrowing a lot of money. And everybody kept lending Puerto Rico money, even though it was obvious that Puerto Rico couldn't pay the money back, although it should have been obvious, but nobody cared. And it didn't become a crisis until somebody wanted their money back and then Puerto Rico didn't have it. You know, that's what everybody's been saying. It's, it, it doesn't matter until it matters, right? The debt doesn't matter until it does. Well, now it matters. And in fact, when it does matter, it's the only thing that matters. But it didn't not matter when no one cared about it. It mattered. It just wasn't a crisis. But it, it was going to be a crisis. The whole point of my warnings 
about the crisis was to do something about it, to mitigate the damage, to change course. And of course, since I was convinced that we would never change course, I wanted to make sure that as many people as possible were prepared uh, financially. And there's still time. There's still time to get prepared. How much? I don't know. Probably not that much. But you know, you can still sell your dollars because the dollar index is 106. <laughs> so you can get out before the bottom drops out. Gold is barely over 2,000. You could buy it. Hopefully, you have an opportunity to get out of U.S. financial assets completely, right? Uh, and and get yourself properly positioned before this whole thing implodes. But the process has begun. There is no turning back. The Fed has already lost control of the bond market. We wouldn't be above 5% on a 30-year if uh, the Fed still had control, if, if the lie was still believed. All the evidence now is like 2007 when subprime blew up, when the big subprime lenders went out of business. Right. So what's happening right now is the wake-up call. This is uh, uh, the, the, the bell that everybody claims is never rung. Well, they're ringing this bell loud and clear. I just want to make sure that not only do you hear the bell, but that you act on it before it, 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 time runs out. You know, don't ask for who, whom the bell tolls. It tolls for you. Everybody has to realize that this bell is going to spell disaster, unfortunately, for a lot of Americans. And the most important thing that we can do now, we can't stop it. It's going to come. Right? There's nothing we can do to prevent it. All we can do is brace for the crash and protect ourselves and then hope, hope in the aftermath of this crisis, in the aftermath, when I can finally just say, I told you so, loud and clear, maybe, just maybe, somebody will listen to my message on what we have to do and not follow the advice of the same people who destroy the economy because the people that broke it aren't going to fix it. And I'm not smart enough to fix it either, but I am smart enough to know that the government can't, that the only way out is a full embrace of free market capitalism. We have to go back to sound money and limited government. We have to go back to the principles that were enshrined in the Constitution that made this country great again. They can make it great again again. All we have to do is adopt it. And it'll be easier now because we have much better technology today than the founding fathers had. So it's an easier task if we could just embrace the same economic and personal philosophy. I know how hard that is, given how dumbed down our society is, but there's always hope. Anyway, on that note, uh, have a great uh, weekend, and I'll be back again next week uh, with more podcasts.